Hello, hello, and welcome to Better Words. I'm Michelle, and I'm from the Unfinished Bookshelf. And I'm Caitlin, and I'm just a bookish babe. So we have so much to discuss this week, because we last recorded, like, it feels like years ago. It was like two weeks. Yeah, I know. It's just been a busy time. (laughs) It has been busy. So the first thing to discuss, which we actually mentioned in our intro that we pre-recorded for last week, because we went to Ed Sheeran last Wednesday. It was amazing. It was amazing. I keep telling everybody that it was just incredible. And if you've ever been to Ed Sheeran, you'll know. But I was just so impressed. I didn't know by that he his talent. everything. He, he does everything. He records, like, all, you know, all the chords it. and, like, yeah. he loops it live. So it literally is just a boy and his guitar. <laughs> and it's incredible. He was amazing. I loved it. What was your favourite song? Oh, okay. So I really, really liked. He did a bit of a mashup remix of uh, "Don't Don't You Man. Man," and so he was halfway through it, and I'm like, "Well, I guess this is Ed's way of telling us that those songs are about the same people." <laughs> so I really liked that. I'd never thought that was of that really mix good before, and it worked really well too. It did work so well. Yeah, yeah. and I, I really like both of those songs, as in like their beats so and good. stuff. Yeah. yeah, so they were good. Yeah, and I really um, enjoyed. Um, Nancy Mulligan and Galway Girl. That's a really good one. Because hey? they're like my they're like my favorite songs. But Did you course, see like, Nancy Mulligan? Someone had like an Irish flag in the oh, crowd. No. Yeah, I think I pointed it out to your mum because I was sitting next to your mum, and then oh. Indy was between you and her. Yeah, and yeah, someone had like an Irish flag in the crowd. It was That's so, so cute. awesome. Yeah, no, I didn't notice that. I did film like the entirety of those two songs <laughs> because they're my brother's favorite as well. Oh, um, yeah. but I haven't actually seen him to. <laughs> discussed Ed Sheeran yet but anyway yeah it was wonderful and I loved Shape of You which was his yeah. encore a couple of people left before the encore I know what are you doing he like walked off stage and you like know he has a like, done Shape of You for like a second and people started <laughs> to get up and leave and he did say before he's like this was the last song of the show I was like yeah sure yeah because he also it's like at near the beginning of the show um I don't know he was telling a story or like joking about something about people being involved and make you know like saying yes. things about the yeah. dads who the dads are always like we should leave he's during like, the he's like I respect that that's fine but I want you to get involved it was yeah. so cute he was wonderful but like he literally mentioned that there's an encore like yeah at the beginning of the show there I just I'm I've been to a lot of concerts in the last year and I just find the encore so annoying because I'm like I know you're gonna play another song just just play it like I'm I know just, I'm getting a bit over the whole like oh, the faking of the yeah I know and I'm like I know you're coming back in a second I know Edge I think Edge Paul did like two three encores and I mean like not songs as in like going off and then coming back on and I kept saying to the person I was with him like he hasn't done he always finishes on the end because it is the final song yeah it's the perfect ending I'm like so he hasn't done it yet and I was not finished the encores are always planned and like the faking of the encore does kind of bug me sometimes yeah. I think it's just. Lately, because I've, I've been to, because yeah. I did, like, Adele, yeah. Ari, Paul, Kat, and then Ed, and I'm just like, come on, I, I know mean, that you're coming back. I obviously didn't go to two of those, you were, but we yeah. went to Ari and Ed together, and I yes. think Ed handled it a bit better, because Ari, when we were, you know, everyone was like, oh, Ari, Ari had everything. Ari had a costume change, She had costume change. So that was different. Which, which when she came back out, I did appreciate it because she put on like the black, black like dangerous yeah, woman outfit. She did, a and I appreciated that. And obviously, they're very different artists. She had heaps of costume changes. Ed was wearing like jeans and t-shirts. Yeah, it's Ed. And um, Paul did like a couple of different 
like at one point I loved who came on with all the flags. I think I was telling you and like one was like the rainbow flag oh, and he had the cool. Indigenous Australian flag and the Australian, like he had all the flags and stuff. So that was cool. But, yeah, I think I'm kind of like, can we stop faking it? We know you're coming back I know. to do the song that is the most popular on your album. Yeah, Like, exactly. come on. I know, like with Ariana Grande, literally called the Dangerous Woman Tour. And she, and she had, had done Dangerous, Dangerous Woman. Woman. So, like, we all, we, because when we were walking to Suncorp, we all tried to guess what his opening and what his closing song would be. And we were wrong. Well, we knew he'd do Shape of You for the yeah. encore. Yeah. We were all wrong about his opening, though. Yeah, no one guessed Castle on the Hill. He opened the I Castle think we on the thought Hill. that he might do I that for the encore, potentially, too. Yeah. Well, because it was one of the other more really big ones. ones. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I thought oh. that he was going to do Bibi Harvey. I mean, you no. can't even say I can't even say the name of the song. I can sing Bibi Harvey, yeah, something um, like that. What he did do for us was Barcelona, which he said is the first time he's played in Australia. So which is really awesome. Cool. I love that song. Yeah, it is a beautiful song. And something else we got was a duet with Missy Higgins. Yes, that was beautiful. Even though you are not a fan of the I'm not a fan of Beyonce. Beyonce I listened to the Beyonce. It was on the radio the other day, and I was like, no, Missy Higgins did it better. She really did. It was beautiful. I am perfect, you might even say. Yes, perfect. It was. <laughs> Missy Higgins is fantastic. Yeah. Um, oh, how many memories did you really get from have... Scar, though, when she performed <gasps> yes. that at the start? All you have to do is hear the little bit at the first. I know, which was like, maybe you guys know this one. <laughs> and she's like, I think it was my first single. And I'm like, yes! <laughs> like, everyone knew she'd be And, like, that. Steer. Are you and all, that that all you have to hear is, like, you left a bum. Oh, you put soap and a scrubbing brush next to her. No, Daddy your Yeah, love it. Oh, it's just the intro and you're just like, yes, I'm there. It's like mid-2000s. Yeah. and <laughs> Yeah. Um, I do have a couple more things to mention. Me too. Okay, Go. so we've got to start talking about the cheering. Okay. Um, another reason I've been busy the last two weeks is that I've been on the crew for a local production of We Will Rock You. You would be surprised how many, none of our audiences, they always try and clap. Um, so there's, when they start singing the song, the audience will try and clap, but then no one's in time or anything like that, which oh. I just noticed, but there's just a sound effect terrible. because the characters go like, Oh my God, the beat. And there's a sound effect of the, and then the audience gets in time with the beat. It's very funny. But, um, the thing with that is that this is the only musical I've ever been a part of that has an encore because it's a queen musical and the Bohemian Rhapsody is not actually in the show. It's like the last song. So oh, we have so a scream, an LED screen, and it comes down and at the end it's like, do you want more? We can't hear you. Do you want Bohemian Rhapsody? And then it's like, okay, if you insist, <laughs> we were going to sing it anyway. So it, like, that's so good. it does own the encore, but it's – yeah. I think that's really cool, though, but every time I put in a story, because if you're not familiar with the, the musical version, the main characters' names are Galileo, Figaro, and, and Scaramouche. So every time I've written a story promoing the show, in my head I'm just like, Galileo, 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 Figaro. Oh, there's so much singing backstage. <laughs> it's so it's fun. so annoying though because I just like then it gets on a loop in my head all day and I'm like, damn it. Like all of March has been a loop of Queen and Ed Sheeran just <laughs> running around and around my head. But the other musical I have to mention is Aladdin. Aladdin. How I was it? Magical. <laughs> so beautiful and magical it is the most beautiful an intricate set I have ever seen in my entire life. I'm doing lots of hand yeah. gestures. I have to butt in, though, to say with the set, 
we have a friend who is on the crew for Aladdin. I know. The first thing I did was flip through the program yeah, to find her name. It's so wonderful. So Natalie Carriage, um, so I went to school with her. We've done musicals with her. She's worked in our local theatre here. Yeah, she has she's she's amazing. Crew and Aladdin. we should link the story that I did with her because yeah. she also just won a $10,000 award for young mechanists. And part of what she wants to do is, like, I guess, inspire other young women to take on a yeah. job which is traditionally male-dominated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. and to be in the theater, it's so cool. Yeah, and it's amazing considering like the, how magical that set is oh, as well. It's so magical, like flying carpet looks. Yeah, she insane. said there were so many um, automated things. It's oh, incredible. There's, it's oh, I can't <laughs> even form words. It was so magical, and there were lots of. I really appreciate that. You know, everyone knows Aladdin. Mm. You know, so, like, um, with the genie, obviously they couldn't have him flying or anything like that. So there were some quite cool inventive ways where he did that. Like, in the Cave of Wonders when he first appears, um, you know, Aladdin's, like, rubbing the lamp and then something drops and he's, like, standing on top of, like, a pile of, you know, jewels or whatever. Mm. Um, And then he's like, okay, I'll be right with you. And it, like, goes down like an elevator. (laughs) But, oh, the actor who played him was incredible. Yeah. And... The actor who played Aladdin, I did not actually see. I saw the understudy. I've never seen a show where a lead was not there. Yeah. Like, yeah, anyway. Yeah. I have nothing else to say. Like, it was just incredible, beautiful, the set. Oh, the Cave of Wonders set is, we should try and find a picture from the website or something. Yes. So shiny. Oh, my God. It was amazing. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. Oh, and fun fact, you'll appreciate this. Mm. My mum said that she thought one of the ensemble members looked like Dax Shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's so weird. Too fun. Yeah. Well, um, you stayed in Brisbane and watched a musical. I came home and found my new obsession. Um, it's Baby Ballroom on Netflix. I'm obsessed. Is this going to be like Dance Mums, Tumbles and Tiaras? It's so much better, though, because they're not psychotic. But they're, they're baby, so baby ballroom. Yeah, what? baby is like things look actually babies. No, they're actually like children. Like ten years old. They're yeah. like they've got like nine year olds, probably the youngest, and they go through to fourteen. And they each week you follow like um, a main couple um, at this dance school. And there's one little girl who looks like Hermione, and she's with her partner. And he's like, um, she says something like, "Where's uh, second in the world?" And he's like, "No third." And she's like, "No second." <laughs> Third, and she's like, no, it's second. Trust me, it's second. Like, what's second? What's second? <laughs> Very much Hermione. It was so gorgeous. And then there is another little kid who looks exactly like the child version of our friend Austin. <laughs> and I snapped out of him, and he wrote back, was like, do I have a child? I do not know about. Like that is me. <laughs> and I'm like, you'll love this kid. Gets pulls faces to get better marks. Doing so, he pulls the funniest little faces. I'm like, Austin would have done that. It was so cute. They have it so good. It was so cute. But seriously, you should watch it. It's so addictive. I've got Jack addicted to it now, and he's more invested than I am. Of course he is. In it. It's amazing. The the dancers are incredible. I'm sure they are. Like, I am in awe. Yeah. I'm in awe of the things that those little kids can do. They are amazing, and I'm just like hanging on to every every episode oh I watch. Of it. I watched nearly the whole season in like two days. 
I'm, it's I'm not incredible. Sure. I'd probably be willing to give it a go. Give it a go. I've so never cute. watched Dance Moms. Especially or since or the first episode has baby Hermione in it. Okay. It's cute. Okay. Maybe. And they're not they're not psycho like Dance Moms or Toddlers and Tiaras. Like they're actually genuinely like funny and the ballroom teachers are really nice and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Well, it sounds not, a bit nicer. Probably because it's UK as well, so it's not. Oh, it's British? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, you're there. I'm there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I should have said it's British. Yes. Far better. Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, baby boring, mind your obsession. I love it so much. If you're listening to this on the day it is released, Wednesday, better words day. Yep. uh, Join us tonight at 8 p.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time, Daylight Savings Time, for a chat with Ellie Marnie about her new book, White Night, using the hashtag BW Book Club. Yay. So we'll have some discussion questions, but it's also a chance for you to ask Ellie anything you want to. Um, we're very happy that she'll be joining us, and we're really excited to talk about this book. It's our first month of our book club. Yeah. It's exciting. I don't know how frequently we will be doing it, but we do already have next just, month. Yeah. Should we tell Definitely. Them? No, not yet. Okay. But we've definitely got March and April. We will tell you what April is next week. So listen then. But listen to this interview first. (laughs) Listen to this interview first. Uh, It's going to be a really good one. This week, we're pleased to welcome a young adult author who has published three critically acclaimed novels, as well as one of the most anticipated collaborations of 2017 with Simone Howell and Kat Crowley. Before writing YA, our guest worked as a television scriptwriter for 12 years and worked on everything from soaps to dramas. Welcome to Better Words, Fiona Wood. Hi, lovely to be here. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you. It is wonderful to have you. I was just thinking while you were reading that intro, Michelle, that I was like, oh, well, if you say the other two, it kind of gives away who we're interviewing, but your name will be in the episode title anyway, so I know why I get caught up about, like, keeping it a secret. I know, but this is the way I write them now, and I'm like, I don't I don't want to break it. This is how we write it. I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're kind of stuck with that, even though everyone who listens to the episode already knows yep. who it's going to be. Um, so firstly, Caitlin has something she wants to ask you because she just read Six Impossible Things and she's just started wildlife. Yes. um, I hadn't quite gotten around to reading your books yet, but I have to say this is one of the best things about this podcast is that Michelle has like interacted with all of you guys for years and then she's like, I'm going to get so-and-so on and I'm like, well, I have to read the book. (laughs) But because now these books that have been sitting on my TBR for years, well, I've just been rereading Harry Potter, like I'm reading them. So that's (laughs) good. Um, And this is a slight spoiler if you haven't read them, but the books have been out long enough that I think we can discuss this. Yeah. Caitlin, what's like the first thing you said to me when you started reading Wildlife? You killed Fred. I know. It was a, that was a terrible moment when I realised that uh, I had to make that decision as a writer because I really loved Fred as a character. But um, and and I had lots of talks with my publisher about you know whether I should do it or not. I was I was more convinced than she was, but I persuaded her that we needed that I needed to do it. And um, so the reason for killing Fred, I still feel sad about it. Was that I was I'd already um, started writing wildlife, and I was thinking while I was writing it, um, you know, as I was developing the character of Sibylla and her story, I was thinking, well, you know, Sib actually she really needs a, a plain speaking friend. She needs a really smart friend. She needs someone like Lou, 
uh, from Six Impossible Things. And I was thinking, well, that's, you know, bad luck. She's in a different book. Um, and then I thought, okay, well, maybe I could, how could I migrate Lou as a character to wildlife? And, you know, then I started thinking uh, the whole thing about how she would be incorporated in the story if she were to become Sibylla's friend, how on earth would that happen? And then I thought, okay, well, if she she's perfectly happy as I leave her at the end of Six Impossible Things, she's happy at that school, happy in her life, what would make her sort of pop up in a completely different school in this sort of term where people are in an outdoor education boarding campus? And it just came into my mind pretty straight away what would really mess up her life at the moment is if Fred were to die. That could change everything for Lou. That could that could cause her all sorts of problems and and complete change in her life situation. And that's what I constructed so that Fred dies. She she's in uh, you know obviously incredibly traumatized by it and in mourning and unable to um, attend school for a while. And, in fact, her mothers allow her and are perfectly supportive of her doing some homeschooling for a period of time. And then they decide, and she's in therapy and, you know, trying to cope, um, and then they decide, well, perhaps now's the time and perhaps a, a complete change would be a good idea. And that's how she ends up um, at a different school and being there when Sibylla needs her to be there. So awful though it was, and it broke my heart, and as I was writing those passages in Wildlife where Lou remembers the relationship, I was just sitting there at my desk just crying and crying. (laughs) So, yeah, I did kill Fred. (laughs) Well, um, it is interesting because the other thing that I was really wanted to ask you was, like, why you wanted to bring, you know, one of your other characters into this new story. Um, And I guess from what you just said, you kind of felt like you had to and that, you know, the other characters and that this story really needed. It was a solution, but it also did relate to something that I've always loved reading in other fiction, and that is the migration of characters from book to book. And I suppose the first writers I read who did that would have been J.D. Salinger and Alison Lurie, but more recently in Closer to Home, it's something that Jacqueline Moriarty and um, Melina Marquetta have certainly done, and I really love that because to me it helps um, enhance that idea of the reality of the narrative, you know, that you get the sense that these people have a life between the books and that the, the fact that they might pop up in another book just makes characters feel more real to me, and I really enjoy that. So... Uh, then once I once I did it with one book, then as I was writing Wildlife, I established the character of Van Oak Fan, and she's a very minor character in Wildlife. And at that time, I was thinking, yes, this will be. She's a great character, and wouldn't it be? Could I give her her own story? And she is the protagonist of um, Cloudwish, and uh, Billy Gardner, with whom she has a relationship in Cloudwish, is also in Wildlife. So it's just that sort of idea that there's a that there is a whole world and it's a very real world in your head, and you can um, move those characters from one story to another. I find that really creatively interesting and challenging. I, I love working like that. Yeah, it is wonderful. Is it something that you want to continue now that you've done it for the? Um, last like for the three books, do you want to continue it with your other work? I look, I never say never, and there certainly is a link between Cloudwish and Take Three Girls. Um, that um, in in Cloudwish, 
um, Van Eyck finds a, a cardigan in the Botanic Gardens that is just the thing that she needs when she finds it. And in Take Three Girls, um, Aidy is, is making that cardigan, knitting it and deciding that she loves this idea of leaving a garment somewhere with a little message on it that might be sort of picked up by someone and then worn by, by them for a little while and then you know, put back and worn by someone else. So it's like sort of a, a little connecting thread between those two books. But I don't imagine I'll write another um, whole novel with any one of the characters, although I could. You know, I certainly am interested enough in them to do that, but I haven't got any plans to do that at the moment. Oh, wow. Um, well, you mentioned Take Three Girls, and that's kind of what we want to talk about next. Uh, what was it like writing a book with two other people? Like I imagine writing a book by yourself is hard enough. Um, once you add in, you know, what everyone else wants to do and how they want to take the story, how did that writing process unfold? Oh, look, it was so interesting and it, and it is definitely, look, collaborating and writing is definitely um, a far more um, complex undertaking than writing something yourself, which is complex enough in itself. But um, so I felt really just incredibly lucky that um, I, I've been able to write a book with two of my favourite writers, that is Kath and Simone um, or Kath Crowley and Simone Howell for people who haven't, uh, who might be listening from somewhere else. Might um, be familiar with the book, but um, yeah. So that was such a gift. So, it, but it is complicated, definitely. And so, for instance, when you're writing something yourself and you make a sudden, you know, quick creative decision that oh, actually, I'd rather do it this way, then you know, like depending on where you are in the writing process, even a small decision can have huge sort of impacts backwards through the narrative you might have to change you know 20 little things to incorporate that that creative decision that you make so when that when you're writing a book together each of us making a, a little decision like that had ramifications not only on our own story thread that we were writing but on the other two story threads because of course all the characters appear together so it just meant um collaboration means just a heap of getting together and talking through everything. And so we set up this system that I think was very writer-friendly and probably, you know, looking back, maybe the only way you could do it. Um, I don't think, it, you know, I know, not, you know, not Kath nor, nor Simone nor I were, were interested in writing on the same page together. So what we did was each created a character and we would write that character. But then we had to create the story together. So we had lots of sort of plotting sessions where we talked about story, we talked about the individual character arcs, all the interconnections, the overarching storylines, and we did all of that together and it was really good fun. We had sort of a, a whiteboard and a weekend away and lots and lots of meetings. And uh, then we would go away and have and meet again for every single chapter because as you're writing something, a thousand ideas are always pouring into you as you write. So every every chapter we, we would write, share what we'd written and then meet again before we wrote the next chapter so uh, yeah, there was a lot of sort of recalibration and and sort of making sure that we were making changes that all the characters would be sort of, uh, that would be consistent with all the characters' storylines and stuff like that. So highly complicated. I think if you drew a graph of it, it would be just like a maze of, you know, a thousand different lines going in a thousand different directions. But I think we had such goodwill and such sort of, um, you know, we were friends already and we really loved our story and our characters. So we sort of 
and we worked our way through all of that. And it was, uh, you know, I think we're really proud of the book and, and had a happy process, so it was great. Yeah, gosh, it does sound like a very, I guess, intense process, like that you just were meeting all the time and writing all the time. And how long did writing Take Three Girls take the three of you? <laughs> A lot. Yeah, it took. That's a really great question because it took us. I think. Look, I think the first time we talked about it was in 2011, and, and you know, it came out last year. So, it took a long time. But that sort of related to a couple of the other. So we had a couple of ground rules too that we thought we really wanted it to be possible and to be writer friendly, and for it to not to become a problem. So one of the one of the things that we said to each other was, if anything did happen that that stopped it being fun or that made it problematic, that our friendship was much more important than the, than the project. So we would just drop the project if it started getting really stressful or difficult in any way. And the second was that, you know, each of us was writing other stuff. I mean, Kath was writing Words in Deep Blue, Simone was writing Harper, her next book and I was doing I think the American edit of um, Cloudwish and there, there were lots of sort of there were lots of things that we all had to do as well as writing Take Three Girls so there were lots of gaps in that period of a few years you know maybe sort of up to six months where we we didn't do anything and you know then we got back to it and wrote like you know mad and loved it and sort of then went away again <laughs> so yeah so it was a, pro- a prolonged process but a good one. Wow, my God. It just sounds like, I don't know. I mean, like Michelle said, writing a book by yourself is so hard. And, like, when um, I was reading Take Three Girls, like, you really can see that, you know, each you know each chapter is different and each girl is different. Um, and it just, I can't imagine that being your co-writer. It was so interesting. And in fact, our first draft, so we had a, a really um, a terrific editor, um, Ali Laveau, who um, Kath and I had both worked with before. And uh, as um, Kath and Simone and I had sort of seen it originally, we thought, okay, well, each chapter, we'll just show each chapter, basically same things happening, but um, we're just going to show it from the three characters' points of view. So it will be sort of different. But when we did that in our first draft, it just felt a little bit too repetitive. So Ali was great. She was sort of suggesting to us, look, um, basically it's working, the characters are there and stuff like that. And she was saying, look, it, it'll be, I think it'll be work better, the pace will be better if there's more dovetailing and um, rather than sort of, you know, overlapping. So we, we did the, the next draft, the sort of rewrite, we made sure that we were sort of stretching that out a little bit so that, I mean, when I say stretch, I mean pulling it apart a little bit so that the characters were looking at something quite different in each chapter rather than just revisiting the same scene. So um, that was that was really helpful. But, um, yeah, yeah you know, looking back, you think, wow, that was a really complicated bit of work and it was, but... <laughs> We're really glad we did it. Would you ever consider um, collaborating with other authors or Cat and Simone again um, in the future to write something else? I would definitely work with Cat and Simone again. Um, And we've talked about like sort of in in a half-joking way, take three boys. Um, But every time... Every time we talk about it, we sort of like we're kidding and yet we think, well, you know, that really would be great. And then we look and we think, and if it took us another five years, it might be a bit, a little bit late to sort of link with um, Take Three Girls in any way. But, um, yeah, look, in theory, I'd definitely work with Kath and Simone again. I don't know that, I'd, I, don't know that I would necessarily um, collaborate with 
anyone else. I, you know, it's possible. And certainly Kath and I are collaborating at the moment on um, we're, we're doing some early work on a series for younger readers. Um, but, um, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's complicated work, but it's fun. Uh, I don't know whether I'd, it, it's probably not. It's probably not your go-to thing for a novel-length project um, in the first instance, unless there's a particular reason for it. And for us, it was like three friends writing about three friends. It was just such a fun idea, and we really did have fun with it all the way through, um, as well as having you know like pretty serious things we wanted to say in the narrative. Um, so I mentioned in our introduction that you've also written for TV, um, which I find really fascinating. And I'm sure Caitlin does too because yes. we both love TV. Yep. Um, and I think I think it's probably because it's still storytelling. Um, so we have a lot of TV shows that we adore. Um, how did you get into actually writing for TV and what's been your favourite thing to work on? Yeah, so that's I was um, I was doing quite a lot of freelance journalism, and I interviewed um, a, f- a film producer called Linda House, who um, is she produced Muriel's Wedding and lots of Australian films. And through that, I started doing some PR work for her. And so I was doing you know writing, interviewing heads of department on film projects for press kits and stuff like that. And it was really fun. And, and as I kept doing these interviews, I was thinking, well. Really, I'm interested in film and TV, and um, why why am I interviewing people about it? Why don't I actually do it? And so, so I thought, hmm, good idea. And so I did a screenwriting course at RMIT, and uh, that's how I got into TV writing. And I was actually I was a classic mature age student um, when I started doing the course. I had I think my son was just starting school, so um, I you know like it was a real sort of time impost and I but I made a priority to, to get there to, to do the course to be at the course I worked really hard and I did when I was studying I wrote um, an idea for a tv show which is a legal drama um, called Capra Kennedy with two women who are running a sort of a legal practice type of thing and so I wrote as a mature age student overzealous overworking I wrote a whole bible for that which is the bible in tv is the world of the show and I wrote enough episode ideas for two whole series oh, of the show <laughs> when you're doing something like that it's probably never going to get made but it was a really good calling card so I got I got that read by a few producers and I started getting tv um, writing work while I was still you know doing the course and so it was um, it was great and the first show that I worked on was so I got um, I think I had applied to do like an internship at the ABC and at the time they were making this gorgeous show that I absolutely loved called Something in the Air, which was a half-hour show set in a country radio station and it involved the whole little community and absolutely divine show. Um, and I, you know, I got, I got to write a spec script on that show because I had done an internship at the ABC and they, they liked the work, you know, again, worked my guts out, did the best script I could. And I yeah, started working um, semi well regularly on that show and absolutely loved it. And it's a tiny industry in Australia, so that once you get your foot in the door and if you do a good job, you know, work leads to other work. So it was great. That's amazing. That's what really other things cool. have you worked on? I worked on heaps of stuff. Um it's sort of a while now since I've written TV, but um so I worked on both of, um, you know, like Australia's favourite soaps, Home and Away and Neighbours. Um, and I, I, had a, I had six months when I was working on them at the same time and it was a bit confusing. And uh, <laughs> they were both really great. And, you know, people 
people can sort of be a bit disparaging about soap, but I always make a point of saying, um, you know, whenever I'm talking about TV, that the people I worked on on those shows were some of the smartest people and the best writers really like it's a very, very professional production. It's not sort of like throwaway writing at all. It's a really, um, it's great. It's great writing to have experience in, in doing. So with soaps, of course, you know, they have a whole team of writers. So you might, you'll be writing one episode of, of in a week and at the same time you're busily writing away four other writers are writing the other episodes. But, like, it's an intense workload for the people in the script department. Uh, it's amazing. But then I also wrote, I wrote a couple of kids' TV um, programs, um, Silver Sun and Sleepover Club. Oh. And then <laughs> Sleepover I wrote, Club. I loved that. I loved that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, Sleepover Club was really popular, actually. Yeah, yeah. And that's something you still get royalty payments slipping through for. What was that? Um, so it's like it's popular. It's, it's popular in a lot of markets. It must still be playing in various markets. But um, and then I wrote one hour adult drama too. Um, stuff like MDA and um, Always Greener and uh, Secret Life of Us. It's also old now that you know, like a lot of people have never even heard the show. Well, I remember the ads for Always Greener when I was little. Like I would have been like. It's like I remember seeing them on like the videotapes and stuff that my mum would be like recording her shows on and stuff. Yeah. So I remember always greener. No, yes. I apologise. They do sound familiar, but we both have clubs. Yeah. I do remember Silver Sun being on, but it just wasn't my thing. I watched I think I might have been one a of the guys on. from Sleepover Club was on Silver Sun as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we were having this discussion at work the other day. We were having this. Oh, he's like super. Yeah, I know. I love him. <laughs> um, we were having this discussion the other day. We were around the lunchroom. We were like talking about, you know, um, like uh, Blue Water High. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, like all the different iterations of Blue Water High and all other shows that we used to watch. Oh, so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think TV is a fantastic medium. How much. does it differ to writing novels? Yeah, that's a really good question because there's quite a lot of overlap, and um, the so they're both you know you both you're dealing with narrative in each of them. Um, dialogue is important in both of them, and um, you know character. So the, the, there's a lot of overlap. I mean, the difference is when you write a novel. If you're writing a script, you'll say something like uh, she sat she sat down at her messy desk. And the uh, you've got an art department who will There's a lot of collabor a lot of collaboration in TV. But if you're writing, if you want to evoke the um, idea of a messy desk, and you're writing a novel, there's a, there are a lot more words that you need to put on the page to to put that picture that you want to put in the reader's head. And the same with, uh, in fact, when it comes to character, there's this element of the script called big print, which is just a line of description. And you might say, you can say anything in big print. Um, You can say uh, she's devastated but pretending she doesn't care or something like that. And the actor, the collaboration there is with the actor and the director, and they will interpret that. And in reaction, you know, in the reaction on the actor's face and the, the performance. But if you wanted to say that in a novel, 
again, you need to put all the words in on the page that evoke the actual point of, you know, that where the character is situated emotionally and how that devastation is making them feel. It's all just words on the page. You don't have an actor, you don't have a director. So it's a much more, um, it's a much more sort of, um, what's the word? I suppose a more detailed creative undertaking to write a novel. Uh, but they're both, yeah, there's a lot of overlap and they're both really fun to write, but I far prefer writing novels. And the other thing is in a novel, which you can't do in a script, is that you can write anything and anything and it costs <laughs> nothing. If you, if I were to write a big, th- people running through pouring rain in a novel, I can do it. If I want to put people on another planet, I can do it. <laughs> if I want to put someone in Paris, I can do it. But I can't do that if I'm writing TV for Australia because every single thing needs to be affordable you know, yeah. in a production budget. Yeah. If you want them in Paris, well, you have to take them to Paris. If you want them running through pouring rain, you've got to figure out how to film people with, like, rain. <laughs> That's right. Location, in, in TV, a location filming costs a lot more than mm. filming in a set. So you can build a suit that's like a you know a Paris street, but it's expensive. But to have people running through rain, oh, that's really expensive. Yeah. So. Um, I'm um, quite interested yeah. then to know, because um, you said that a lot of the stuff you worked on, it's been a while since you worked in TV. I'm interested to know then, like, what are some of your favourite things now in terms of, like, the, the writing of TV shows and stuff? What shows are you loving? Um, yes, good question. I'm just thinking, um, well, look, I think if I had to choose one show that I absolutely I'd put on the top of my list, it's the Americans. I haven't haven't started it yet, but I keep hearing amazing things about it. It's so good. Look, it's, I think, um, the, the thing is, um, American TV has, uh, just superb budgets and the stuff that they're doing in the last 10 years has just been great. Um, um, so that look, look, the Americans, Breaking Bad, Friday Night Lights, they're probably th- my three shows that I think were, you know, incredibly successful and gripping and wonderful in a whole lot of ways. Um, yeah, but then let's think. Um, I recently, I watched a few episodes of My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I thought that was hilarious in different ways. Um, I, you know, like I really enjoyed that, that soap um uh, is it called Unreal oh, TV? Oh, yeah, where it's like behind the scenes of reality TV. Oh, yeah. But it's also like it's fictional. Yeah, yeah. But it's one. real. It sounds really good. But yeah, like just so that's sort of on the in the in the camp of sort of light fun, but you know, like really well done. I thought, and yeah, so I like I do like a lot of TV. Yeah, I'm curious to know whether you're like a fan of um, Rake and Janet King, considering your like the first thing you were telling us about was like a law sort of drama um I haven't look to be honest I didn't get to I mean look I didn't watch Janet King um but Rake I thought yeah I watched I think a season of Rake and I thought that was really well written and 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 well yeah directed I am I held off on Rake for a while but my friend convinced me and now I'm absolutely in love with Cleaver like he's just fabulous oh no don't I know he's such it's such a bad character, but at the same time you can't like he's so bad in so many ways. But I just love him. It's ridiculous. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely that's the success of that character for sure. Hideous and (laughs) Richard Roxburgh is just brilliant in that role. Yeah, fantastic. I agree. Um, Really. So, 
Um, you mentioned as well, like obviously lots of different formats that you worked on for TV writing. Is the process pretty much the same for, say, an episode of Home and Away and then a one-hour drama as, you know, or does it kind of change based on what you're writing, what format you're writing? Yeah, no, very, yeah, very much, uh, very much changes. So to give you sort of an example at either end of those um uh, you know, modes, if you're writing like on Neighbours, for instance, I would get um, a scene break. I mean, you don't have any, it's been going for years and if you're brought on as a writer, you don't really, um, unless there's a new character about to pop onto the screen, you don't really have any input in, in character. So everything's very sort of fixed and it's got, there's a big script department doing all the storylining. So you get a scene breakdown in a, in the mail um, <laughs> uh, and you, so you know what the template of your script is. You know the action of the script and you write the script and it's probably, I can't remember, but maybe a couple of weeks' work and you don't write another draft of the script. So you write the script and then it's edited in-house and so for, for so your, your objective as a writer really is to be invisible, to really be so um, well briefed on what the show is about at the moment you're writing it and to know exactly what marks you need to hit for each character, that you don't want to really be, you want to be a good episode, but you don't want to look different. In fact, if you're looking different on a soap, you're probably not going to get another gig. So it can't happen. Yeah, it's got to be consistent. And that makes so much sense because there are people, you know, who will watch Home and Away every night and they will know if X character is doing something out of the ordinary or doesn't sound the same. Absolutely. And it's so much so on Home and Away, there's, you know, one character's allowed to say flamin' and one character's allowed to say flippin'. <laughs> <laughs> You can't cross-migrate those words. Um, in fact, I think the flipping character, I think, is long gone. But anyway, um, so then on the other end of the spectrum, if you're writing a one-hour drama, you're expected to come at you, have a one or two days story meeting at least, and you're expected to come into the story meeting with lots of ideas on um, what, you know, what might happen in this episode. Even though it's, a, it's still a series, a one-hour drama is still a series, there's a lot more input um, required of the writer and that will also involve any secondary characters that relate to the story that you are pitching. So you do create, you tend to create sort of secondary or minor characters in a, in a one-hour drama episode. And uh, then the process is you, you know, after the storyline, you go away and generate the scene breakdown. So in other words, you're structuring a way that you think that story should be told over a one-hour episode and then the scene breakdown goes to the producers, the story producers, the script editor, and they have input to it. They give you notes back on that. And then you write the first draft. And then that process of feedback and notes back continues to up to three drafts. So that's like, um, you know, a few months' work to, to write a, a properly funded one-hour drama episode. Uh, obviously, there's, you know, it's, it's on your desk, not for that whole time. There's backwards and forwards as people read it and respond to it. But it's a much longer it's a much longer piece of work, and you have a lot more creative input. So that's sort of they're the two wow. extremes. Wow. What about the um, the rise of like anthology dramas and stuff? Like Redfern now is a great example where you'll have the same sort of characters, but every episode is like a little vignette in itself, um, and they don't necessarily connect the whole way. Like I remember being amazed when I first watched Redfern now because. The first time I'd seen yeah. that sort of storytelling. 
Yes, that's. I should have probably mentioned that talking about fantastic TV. That's absolutely great, Redfern. Now, but um, the yes, I haven't worked on anthology TV, but I imagine that that would that's sort of like another step further again along from the writer input on the one-hour drama. Like that's almost like writing a little film. There's so much you would have even more input as a writer in an anthology um, TV episode. So yeah. Good God. Also, <laughs> interesting. I know. I'm fascinated. I feel, I feel like I want to go do a screenwriting course. I know. <laughs> go on. No, it's really yeah, fun. It's a it's fun amazing. thing to do. I love it. Yes. And I think um, I think it's something maybe um, people who've never thought about it before might be interested in because they might have read uh, fan- the Fantastic Beasts uh, screenplay or the um, Cursed Child, like it, 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 that might be their first introduction to Actually script writing. Script. Yeah. yeah, so I think um, people might find that more interesting now that they know that that's a thing. Yes. Uh, not not like the rest of us drama kids who read, like, plays and stuff in <laughs> high school. <laughs> I was say, um, I, I feel that I was incredibly lucky having a background in TV writing going into writing novels because, because of all that practice in dialogue writing it was very sort of that's it's something that you just do so much of and you you sort of build a real sort of craft skill in that area which is great and also tv has the um there's uh there are certain things you have to do with a narrative to make television work you know you have to you're really required to keep people watching and not switching you know switching off in the in the olden days where there used to be an ad break and that was a time where people could (laughs) And it seems like the ancient history now where people would sort of perhaps walk away or flick the channel or something like that. So TV writing always had sort of as one of its prerequisites that there is a forward propulsion in the narrative. And that really helps me when I'm plotting novels too because I like that. I like that too. I like that idea that the reader will want to keep turning the page and that's a discipline that very much comes from TV writing for me. And I think, you know, there are two, if I could give two other writers a plug who came from TV, um, Nova Wheatman and, and Claire Atkins both had TV backgrounds and um, I love their books too and I sort of see that, I see those I see those skills in their writing and I really enjoy it. Do you think you'd ever, I mean, this is a huge question, but, like, would you ever want to write a, a screenplay for one of your books and try and get it adapted? Yes, I think the answer to that is definitely yes, and I'm just, <laughs> uh, I haven't got around to it yet. But I will. I will. And there is a thing, you know, like I've got my agent is um, in, based in New York and she's certainly shown, um, I think, probably um, certainly um, Six Impossible Things, Wildlife and Cloud Wish to various film agents, some of whom have been a little bit interested but nobody's actually optioned any of them. But um, I think it was Emily Lockhart who uh, I heard on a podcast talking once about the fact that she just writes a, she writes a script of her books if she wants to shop them around because it's easier for producers to understand script than it is to see, to see a novel and to write to read a novel and to, to imagine how it might um, be adapted to script much easier to actually give them a script so I will get around to it one of these days fair enough I, I mean you have got a lot on your plate yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, speaking of would you like to tell us a little bit about the projects you're currently working on I think you said before that you're writing something with Kath Crowley Yes, yeah, so Kath and I, I'm just um, in my office at the moment looking at looking at a whiteboard from a session we had yesterday and 
I won't say anything about it because I sort of I'm, I'm one of those people who doesn't speak in detail about what they're working on. But um, it's it's for younger readers. It's not YA. And the other thing that I'm working on at the moment, strangely, is not for YA either. It's for older readers, so it's just regular adults. So um, they're the two things I'm working on at the moment. So being a bit cagey, but younger older readers. Sounds exciting, though. Yes. Yeah, no, look, I'm enjoying both of those projects. Fiona, um, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find you on the internet? Thank you very much for having me. Um, People can find me on – I'm not actually – look, I'm one of those writers who's not around a lot, but I do check in every now and then. And I'm on Twitter at Fiona W with underscores between each of the letters and on I know it's a bit it's a bit cumbersome actually but it was you know one of those things where you're trying a thousand names and they're all taken <laughs> and also on Instagram same thing Fiona W or lowercase with underscores between each of the letters and after okay, the where can people find us at better words pod on Facebook Instagram and Twitter and that's because probably because better words was not available because <laughs> many of us in the world now are using social media it's just getting harder and harder um yeah so social media our website is betterwordspodcast.com where you can sign up to our newsletter and find all of our show notes and please subscribe rate and review because it helps other people find the podcast thank you we'll see you too soon bye bye